So the dock is my property, but the property it sits on is not my property, and the water that flows underneath it is not my property. What kind of <laughs> alternate right. universe are we living in, right? peoples? Well, I'll make it even a little more complicated. This is Infrastructure Junkies. Welcome, Infrastructure Junkies, to your show. This is a podcast created by right-of-way professionals for right-of-way professionals. The Infrastructure Junkies podcast is the voice of the right-of-way industry, exploring eminent domain, right-of-way acquisition, and infrastructure development. Welcome, Infrastructure Junkies, to the latest exciting episode. I'm Dave Arnold. And I'm Kristen Short. If you've been listening in this season, we've had two episodes that were surprisingly popular. One was about easement rights on sand dunes in the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy. The other was with our partner Jim Lang about wetlands and the effects. Now, if you took those two episodes and they got married and they had a baby, what do you think would happen? You'd get an awesome beach day. You would get an awesome beach day, but more importantly, you would get an episode about riparian rights, and that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. So riparian rights and wetlands, are those the same? Is that different? I don't know. We're going to have to have a guest that'll explain it to us. Who is he? Well, I have good news. We have with us today, Brian Peoples. Brian is an attorney with Pender and Coward. Brian focuses his practice in the areas of maritime and riparian law. He's a prolific author. Brian has written articles on Virginia aquaculture and maritime law including the Chesapeake Bay Preservation Act, the Virginia Primary Sand Dune and Beaches Act, and the Virginia Tidal Wetlands Act. He has been published in a number of professional journals on a variety of topics, ranging from Virginia real property law to the Anti-Terrorism Act. Brian is a member of the firm's Waterfront Law Practice Group and writes blog articles regularly on the group's website devoted to waterfront riparian property rights law, maritime and admiralty law, and environmental law. Check out their website. Before joining the firm in 2018, Brian retired from the U.S. Navy after 22 years of service as a pilot. He completed seven combat deployments and served as the commanding officer of a helicopter squadron. His last assignment was lead rotational planner for the Joint Staff, where he provided strategic advice to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and the Secretary of Defense. Brian Peoples, it's an honor to have you. Welcome to our show. Well, thank you, Dave and Kristen. It's certainly an honor to be here. We have so many questions for you. We do have a lot of questions. I've got a lot of questions about your bio, especially the helicopter stuff, but I think we'll stick on point at least for the moment. And riparian rights. Kristen, I know a little bit about this having formerly lived on the water. I lived on tidal water, but you're an inlander. I'm an in, I'm You got a, some questions. I'm a landlocked Texan, so I do have some questions. First of all, what are riparian rights? What does that even mean? Can you give us kind of riparian rights for a layperson definition? Sure. So the word riparian really just means something that abuts or is close to the water. So when we talk about riparian property owners or riparian properties, we're really talking about properties that are on a water body. That could be the ocean, a river, a bay, even a stream. You asked earlier in the introduction whether wetlands regulations or wetlands law is the same as riparian property law. They're not the same. That's a really good question, by the way. There's some overlap, but in general, think of it this way. The podcast that you mentioned before about wetlands regulations really was about regulations that sort of prevent things that property owners can do on their land because mm -hmm. there might be a wetland there. You can't discharge fill into a wetland without a permit, things like that. Riparian property rights, on the other hand, are about what you can do. 
So riparian property owners, waterfront property owners have certain specific rights that other people don't have. And those are known as your riparian property rights. So I noticed you said streams, rivers, ocean. Does this include like ponds and lakes? Or does it have to be something that goes elsewhere where water's flowing about? If that it makes does sense. Include, it, it does make sense, yes. And there are riparian property rights that are specific to ponds and lakes, uh, inland bodies of water. And then there are aspects of riparian property rights that have more to do with larger bodies of water, which you might think of as the rivers. We're here in Virginia. I know that we have a national audience, but some of what I'm going to talk about here, I'll reference Virginia just because that's where our practice area is located. But the same concept, I'm sure, applies throughout the United States in that navigable waterways, bigger waterways, like rivers that you might think of that ships go up and down, for example, Mm -hmm. or the ocean or a very large bay like the Chesapeake Bay, uh, which we have here, are going to have a little bit different nuances as far as property rights that are associated with them than would, say, a pond that's located completely upon someone's own property. Okay, so before we get too deep into this discussion, this is great. I can't wait to hear about this. But let's kind of frame it for our audience Our audience deals with property rights. Our audience deals with the right-of-way industry and condemning property rights and acquiring property. So just from the jump, let's clarify something. If a landowner has a riparian right, is that a property right in and of itself? Is it in the bundle of sticks? Yes, it is an actual real property right. It runs with the land. And Again, speaking about Virginia, there is Virginia Supreme Court case law specifically saying that if riparian rights are condemned, then that is something that has to be compensated. Just compensation has to be paid for that because it is a real right. It's just like any other right in the bundle of sticks. Okay, that's very important. So please continue. I just wanted to frame it in that context so that people can get their minds right as we go forward in this discussion. Yeah, and that's a great question because the fact of the matter is it's not only is it a real property right, or I should say not only are they real property rights, riparian property rights, but they're extremely valuable. So based on studies, and this is studies throughout the United States, and it kind of goes along with what you already know, I think most people just being intelligent people in the community know that waterfront property is generally more valuable than non-waterfront property. We've seen that in studies. We've looked at studies that show that for two houses, for example, that are pretty much apples to apples, right? They have a close number of square feet, bedrooms, features. One that is on the ocean will be about 45 to 50% more expensive than a very similar house that's inland. Mm. And yes, so it's a valuable right a valuable aspect of property is being on the water. We see the same thing with rivers and lakes, although it's not quite as much. It's more like 25 to 30% more expensive Mm -hmm. um, for a house that's on a river or lake as opposed to one that's not. You also see this in industrial properties as well. It's not quite as easy with an industrial property to do a total apples to apples type comparison because industrial properties vary so much. But Just looking at some of the cases that we've had where we have to get appraisals of industrial properties that are on, say, the Elizabeth River, which is a big river in Norfolk that has the world's largest Navy base and et cetera, it looks like about 50% of the value of even an industrial property is related to its waterfront location or its riparian property rights. Brian, that's really interesting to me because I've always thought, I mean, I grew up in a 
like a lake community in West Texas. And my house, my parents' house was a block. We were one street in. There was the lake, and then there was another street, and there was us. So we always joked like we were on the poor side of the neighborhood. But I always thought those houses on the lake were more expensive because you got a pretty view. So you got a good view, so it's worth more. Okay. I never considered the rights that go along with that. And so I kind of want to talk a little bit about, I mean, you sent us some great information. Like we, t- we keep saying riparian rights. What rights do people have? What are the rights that come with owning a property that's abutting a body of water? Yeah, so uh, in Virginia, we're lucky because our Supreme Court, the Virginia Supreme Court, way back in 1904, in a case called Taylor versus Commonwealth, if anyone's interested in that, actually laid down five specific rights that riparian property owners have. I would suspect that these are very similar. And in fact, I know that in Taylor versus Commonwealth, they looked at other states and everything and came up with some rights which riparian property owners have. There's five of them. The first one is a little bit vague and it has to do, I think, with what you were speaking about, Kristen, which is a view. But I'm going to skip that one for now because, again, it's a little bit vague and I'll talk about the other four briefly. Please do. One is the right of access to the water, including a right of way to the navigable part. What does that mean? That means if you have property that's on the water, you have the right to get out to a navigable depth, okay? A navigable depth in the water is a water depth that's required to operate a boat that generally would be operated in that area. Okay, so for most places, like you were mentioning on a lake or on a river, that's going to be about three feet. That's what it takes to operate a normal pleasure craft. That is a little bit different than, let's say, if you had an industrial property that's on a river like the Elizabeth River and you needed to get an aircraft carrier in and out. That's a little bit different. The idea of what is a navigable depth is going to vary from place to place. But for most uh, residential people that just want to build a pier or rather just access navigable water, you have a right to get out to about three feet. The second right, which goes right along with that is, and I kind of gave it away, but it's the right to build a pier. Okay, you can actually build a pier. As long as you do it with the proper permits, there's permits that are going to be required. In Virginia, you have to get permission from a certain state agency, which we may talk about later. You probably also need a building permit from your locality. But as long as you have the right permits and you're a waterfront property owner, you have the right to build a pier out to navigable water, which again, usually is about three feet. You have the right to accretions or alluvium. Okay, now now hold on there. (laughs) Let me just tell you something. I don't know what those words mean, and I think you know that. Okay, that, and I'll tell you, when I was looking at the information that you sent, I asked Dave, I said, what are those words? And he goes, I think I knew that at one point. I'm not sure. So we're going to need you to to delve into that just a bit. We don't know big words here. Yeah, and I'm glad you asked. So waterfront property changes. Okay. It's not stable, right? So if you were to, to look at you know some piece of land out in the middle of, I don't know, Wyoming or something like that, and you put a fence around it, it's probably going to stay, your property line is probably going to stay about the same. But waterfront, especially on rivers, bays that are very dynamic, are different because your property line as a waterfront property owner can change. There's something called accretions, something called alluvium. Accretion basically means sediment that is deposited on your shoreline through a natural process. Like let's say you live downstream on a river and the sediment is being washed from upstream and being washed away from someone else's property and being deposited on your property, your property line can actually extend, it can grow. So you can Mm -hmm. gain property out into the water. 
property that used to be out into the water, but now sediment has been accreted onto there. So, so that's an, an accretion, but that's, that's, an that's accretion. naturally occurring. I can't bring some dirt in and, and mess with the shoreline or something, right? That is absolutely correct. It has to be naturally occurring and it has to be slow and imperceptible over time. So you absolutely cannot, without permits, just come and dump fill onto your shoreline just to gain more property. Not only would that probably put you in violation of many wetlands <laughs> regulations uh, to get back to the previous podcast that you talked about, but it's also not going to change your shoreline because it's not natural and it's not gradually occurring. Along those same lines, and this is very interesting, if it is natural but not gradually occurring, let's say an earthquake or a tornado comes and drastically changes your shoreline, that actually does not, at least in Virginia, change your property line. Aha. So Okay. Okay. Sorry. I got to jump in here. You uh -huh. didn't include hurricanes, which we deal with all the time here, Brian. And let's just say there was a hurricane called, ooh, I don't know, Isabel from 2003 that hung out over Hampton Roads for a while. And let's just say I lived on some waterfront property there and I lost about 10 to 15 feet of shoreline to Hurricane Isabel. In other words, my yard was cut short 10 to 15 feet and became part of the Chuckatuck Creek. What about that? Did I lose my property line? You did not lose your property line because it wasn't gradually and imperceptibly over time. It would be what would be called an avulsion, which is a sort of a drastic natural event, like a hurricane. Is that um, the thing in the back of your throat that Popeye used to use as a punching bag, an avulsion? That's, a, that's called a uvula. I think, Same I think difference. That's, that's similar. I thought it was an epiglottis, but I'm, I could be wrong. No, that's what, never, <laughs> I, I have a degree in vocal music, so I know all about this stuff. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. Random. Random fact of the day. Okay, okay, so hold on, hold on. Let's go back. So that's avulsion. Avulsion, and we've got accretion is the slow and gradual, naturally occurring addition to your property line. What's alluvium? Alluv alluvium? It's what a can right. is made of, that's, and you can recycle that's right. it. That's aluminum. Oh, got it. Apparently I'm British, British now, too. <laughs> yes. Okay, so what is alluvium? It's the opposite of accretion. So in the example that I gave, there's a property upstream and a property downstream, and the upstream properties sediment was being slowly washed away, mm -hmm. that's alluvium. If you're the person who's losing a property, you're having alluvium take place on your coastline. Okay. Thank you for those definitions. I feel smarter already. Okay. So that was number, was that number three of the rights? That was the third one. Okay. The next one is the right to make a reasonable use of the water as it flows past your land. Huh. And that's actually very, very interesting because there's a few legal are terms that we see in the legal world and they're like reasonable, okay? <laughs> so think about, for example, back in the day when people used sawmills and water wheels and things like this. Do you use the water as it comes past your land? That's fine. You have the right to do that as a riparian property owner. Irrigation is a big thing. And I know that's a big thing out, especially in some of the Western states, using water for drinking water or for irrigation, you have a right to do that. Mm -hmm. The key is that it has to be reasonable. And so what you cannot do is use so much water that it harms someone downstream. In other words, I can take enough water to reasonably water my crops or feed my cows, but I can't do it to such an effect that it's causing the crops downstream or the cows downstream to die. But nonetheless, that's a right that a riparian property owner has, is to use the water. Before we move on from that one, I understand the concept of that, but who's the watchdog of that? Like you're, you know, Mr. Smith's using too much water. Is there a, some regulatory 
force out there? Who controls that? Good question. So there's a few different ways. In Virginia, it's required that if you're going to take a certain amount of water, either groundwater or even water from a river, that's over certain amounts Mm -hmm. that you have to have a permit, a Virginia water Ah. withdrawal permit. And I know other states have very similar uh, water withdrawal permitting system. So that's one way is if you believe that your neighbor upstream is taking too much water, you can file a complaint, you know, request an investigation with the state regulatory agency. Or you could always sue in a court also. That it may be a nuisance claim, uh, a tort claim. You could actually file a lawsuit against someone and convince uh, the court or the jury that the person upstream from you in this example is making an unreasonable use of the water and get either damages or or perhaps a, a court order telling them to stop. Okay, so my understanding of this, the right to use the water that's flowing by is you're not taking too much of it and you're not doing anything that's, you're not polluting it or it's not right. damaging whatever's happening downstream. Is that correct? Uh, yes, that's right. The last one is quite vague. So I'm just going to read what it says. And again, this is the Virginia Supreme Court. It says, the right to be and remain a riparian proprietor and to enjoy the natural advantages thereby conferred upon the land by its adjacency to the water. Hmm. Now, (laughs) the other ones that we mentioned, as I said before, I think are pretty straightforward. You know, you can build a pier. You can reasonably use the water. But what in the world does it mean to be a riparian proprietor to enjoy the natural advantages conferred by the water. And I think it gets back to Kristen, your point, things like the view, right? It's one of the most important things. One of the main reasons that people want to live on waterfront property that's not covered by the other specified rights is just that it's nice, right? It's, nice. it's just really nice. Yeah. So it's vague, but at the same time, I think that's what it means. I think it's, I think it means that it's just really nice to live on the water. It's really nice. Well, Brian, here's a question on that one in particular. So if I own waterfront property and I have the riparian rights to, to the navigable area, which I want to talk about that a little bit more in a minute, but what's going to infringe on that right? If I own the property and I've got the riparian rights, like the just it's nice to live on the water, what kind of things could happen that would infringe upon that right? A lot of what we see in our practice area is unfortunately neighbors that that don't get along with mm-hmm. each other. And so this is a really important point that you made that you said you wanted to ask about the riparian area. And that's really important because your property line generally ends at the water line. Okay. In Virginia, we end at the mean low water mark. We're actually an outlier. Most states' property lines end at the mean high water mark. Uh-huh. But in any event, in most cases, waterfront property owners don't own the land underneath the river or the bay or the ocean that they live next to. Okay. There are exceptions to that, which we can go into in a minute. But generally speaking, your property stops at the water. However, There's an area out in the water, which is kind of like a footprint that's adjacent to your waterfront property in which you don't own the water, you don't own the land underneath the water, but yet you have exclusive rights. And the rights that you have are these five rights that we talked about. One of the biggest ones that we see coming into contention with people is peers. Mm -hmm. Let's say I have this beautiful waterfront view and my neighbor puts in an application to build this big, huge, monstrous pier. And I can see it from my living room window, and I really don't like it. 
We see that all the time. Mm -hmm. They have a right to build a pier because they are assuming that your neighbor is also a waterfront property owner. They have a right to build that pier. They have a right to get out the navigable water and to build the pier out to navigable water. But they can only do it within their riparian area. Okay, they can't build that pier such that it, cro- it encroaches into your riparian area. Ah. So what's the riparian area? That's the question, yes. <laughs> it is. Now, I will tell you, most people get this wrong. Most property owners, because what they just sort of assume is if you go out to your property line and you just look straight down your property line and imaginarily draw a line, down your property line, out to the line of navigability. I know about where three feet is out there. And then just do the mental picture that the pie shape or whatever it is, the area that you mentally imagine in front of your land is going to be your riparian area. Sure. And so people will say, hey, that guy's building his pier right through my riparian area because I can see it right out of my living room. And clearly that's in front of my property. So that's mine. But in fact, it's much, much more difficult to tell where a riparian area actually is. And Mm. again, I'm going to talk about Virginia for a minute, but in Virginia, our Supreme Court, all the way back in, I think it was 1897, laid down how riparian areas are determined. It's quite complicated. Uh, It requires a specialized type of survey, which not many people can do. This is very different than a land survey. Uh, It starts out with a land survey. Okay, so there has, you have to pick points along the shoreline using natural features, and then you have to go out into boats and take depth soundings and figure out where the line of navigability oh. is. Huh. Yes, and there's a, an entire formula that, again, our court has laid down to determine where it costs about five or $6,000 usually to get one of these surveys done. And it then has to be actually certified or approved by the court. So it's, it is different and more complex than a regular survey. And unfortunately, or fortunately, that's what it takes to actually establish your riparian area. So if you believe that your neighbor is, for example, in this example, building a pier in your riparian area, you first need to establish where your riparian area mm-hmm. is and where your neighbor's riparian area is. And if you can do that and show that they're no kidding building a pier through your riparian area, you can actually file a lawsuit and have it torn down. Oh my gosh. Wow. Well, let me clarify something from, for myself here. So you're taught this riparian area that goes, you have the riparian rights from basically the, the edge of your property, which is the mean low water line to the navigable area. Correct. Correct. Okay. And in most cases, if I own waterfront property and I've got this riparian rights area, I am not the owner of the land under the water. I am not the owner of the water, but I can build, I can give myself access to, like, it's almost like a a right of way. Is it an easement? Is it kind of like an easement? It's very similar to an easement. We don't call it an easement, but Mm -hmm. that's actually a very good analogy because at least in Virginia, in most cases, and again, I'm not talking about small little tiny little creeks or ponds that are completely surrounded by land, but when we talk about bays and rivers and oceans, I mentioned that your property line stops at the mean low water. That's where the state takes over. So the the state of Virginia, and this is true, at least up and down the East Coast for the other states, is owned by the state. And Mm -hmm. it's owned by the state and it's held as a common area in trust for all the people. So all of the people actually have a right to swim there and fish there and boat there. 
but they can't build a pier there. Only you can build a pier there. Um, okay. So anybody, yes. other people can use my riparian rights area for <laughs> recreational activities. They just can't build something there. Is that right? That's right. And it surprises people to know sometimes that if they buy this big, beautiful house on the water and all of a sudden they look out and someone's sailing right in front of their house or swimming there or something like this, we'll get calls saying, I need them to stop doing that. And we have to say, well, sorry, but that's a common area. That doesn't give my neighbor's children the right to jump off my dock because he's too cheap to put his own in. That's exactly correct because your dock is your property. So the dock is my property, but the property it sits on is not my property, and the water that flows underneath it is not my property. What kind of <laughs> alternate right. universe are we living in, right? peoples? Well, I'll make it even a little more complicated. It's not even 100% clear whether your dock is your personal property or if it's a part of your real property. Well, that's interesting. I've been on some acquisitions under eminent domain where there was waterfront and there was absolutely value on those docks as part of the appraised value of the property. Oh, for sure. I believe it's part of the real property as an appurtenance or as a fixture, sure. well, it, but it's not completely clear. I don't see how it could be a fixture because if you've seen them drive those pilings, I mean, some of those pilings are down 10 or 15 feet and can't come out except by a crane. I mean, clearly it's intended to be there forever. I don't know if you can exactly. delineate between the pilings and the decking on top or what. Anyway, that's for somebody much smarter than me to deal with. So any listeners, you have these questions, you call Brian up. Don't call up us. Don't call up Kristen and me. We don't know. We don't know. Okay. Let me ask you another question. So if you, if I have riparian rights and I want to go put something down can I put something underwater? Like, for instance, some sort of a trap or I don't know. Like a crab pot. Yeah. Can I put a crab pot out there? Uh, can you put a crab pot on in someone else's riparian area? Can I put or it? Can you put it? Can I put it in my own? Yeah, I want both. I want to know both. Can I put it in my own? And can Dave come put put it in somebody else's? Is it is it you can only use that area if you have the riparian rights to it? Uh, no, you, people can put crab pots, mm -hmm. um, in, in other people's riparian areas. Yes. Ah. And <laughs> you can also get oyster leases in Virginia. You can actually lease areas that in some cases are inside other people's riparian areas. But you're what leasing you, them not from the person with the riparian rights. You're leasing them from the Commonwealth. The, Commonwealth. the state. Okay. Yes, that's right. That's right. And you can do that without, and I'm talking about um, shellfish leases, oyster leases. You can do that without a specific permit. You just have to get a lease from the state. And they're very, very cheap. They're hard to get because they're very, very in demand, but they're very cheap. However, what you cannot do without a permit is put floating oyster cages on top of the water. Ah. So this has become a new thing in the oystering industry. Most oyster cages sit on the bottom and they grow oysters on the bottom, and then the oystering people, the watermen, have to come and pull them up and pull the oysters out and put new little baby oysters in so that they can grow. But in the last few years, they've developed this, I guess you call it a technology, of actually having these cages that are on floats, and they float at the top of the water, but they're sort of tied together with a system of cables, and then they're connected to the bottom with a system of cables. Waterfront property owners really don't like those because, frankly, they're ugly. Okay. Right. And there are hundreds of them. So you can walk out onto your deck or your dock and look out and in front of your property that you paid all this money for, there's the, uh, hundreds of these floating cages. Okay. So that's considered to be not well liked by neighbors. And so because of that reason, 
the oystermen who want to use those have to have a specific permit from the state agency. But other than that, yes, other people can fish, other people can swim, other people can sail through your riparian area. Wow. Can they skinny dip? <laughs> uh, I don't know this, the, the law on skinny dipping. Easy, people. <laughs> easy. Pretty don't get yourself in trouble. <laughs> this episode is proudly sponsored by Pendulum Land Services. As you may know, Pendulum prides itself on its bevy of resources in the right-of-way industry and its strategic partnerships, which benefits all of its clients. Brian Peoples and his team at the Waterfront Law Group are perfect examples of that. Find out more about Pendulum at PendulumLand.com. That's PendulumLand.com. All right, now's a good time for us to take a quick little break and play a game. Would you like to play a game with us? I would love to. Okay, so we do a little game on infrastructure junkies. We haven't done this in a little while, but we do a game called Over Under Push. And basically, I'm going to tell you three things that you're going to tell us whether they are overrated, whether they're underrated, or eh, it's a push, and they're just aptly rated. Now, we have a good reason for choosing all of these things, but I'm going to read you three things, and you're going to tell us if it's overrated, underrated, or it's a push. Are you ready? I'm ready. Item number one, oysters. I think they're underrated. Very, very, very good. Yes, sir. Oh, I forgot to tell you, part of the rules of the game is that we get to judge, I, I, if you could just not pipe in for a minute, that'd be great. I get to judge whether or not your opinions are correct. And on that one, like you're, you're batting a thousand right now. You are correct. Oysters are underrated. Raw oysters on the half shell, right? We're all on the same page. Oh, yes, absolutely. If you steam them, then you don't really like oysters. Exactly. You like mussels. I completely agree with you on that too. I believe that they should be raw and and can I tell you why I think oysters are underrated other than the yes. fact that I just think that they're really delicious is because not only are they delicious, but they are great for the environment. Oysters clean the water, which yeah. may be something you want to think about next time you're actually eating an oyster, that it's sort of acting as a filter. But one <laughs> oyster can filter through something like 50 gallons of seawater a day. So wow. putting oysters in the bay and putting them in rivers actually clean up the river and they're good for the environment. And not only that, they're a very good economic resource. Virginia just has millions of dollars a year industry. And right now we're the number two oyster producing state after Louisiana. We're trying to be number one. I did not know that, but I'm telling you, I make fun of people who eat Gulf oysters. I'm like, do you like the taste of crude oil with your dinner? (laughs) I love Gulf oysters, but I prefer oysters in the on the East Coast, I will say. But I, I, yeah. I love an oyster in New Orleans, too. Well, fascinating. And like I said, you did great on that first one. Let's see how you do on number two. Number two, <laughs> wetlands. Overrated, underrated, or it's a push? They're underrated as well. Okay, um, go on. Because, well, they're not as underrated as they used to be. There was a time in the United States not that long ago when they were considered to be nuisance areas. Mm-hmm. Cities and states actually wanted to get rid of wetlands, which is, I think, why we have a lot of flooding problems in places like New Orleans and Norfolk, Virginia, because those areas were not really supposed to be dry land areas. They were filled in and developed because people thought wetlands were terrible. They were places where disease spread and they smelled bad and let's just get rid of that. Now we recognize the value of wetlands because they're a f- the sponge area, if you will. So when we get large tidal surges, wetlands sort of soak that up instead of it coming into your living room. So I think they're underrated. 
I think he's he's two for two. Yeah, I think that's good. Good, <laughs> good, Brian. Two. Very good. Finally, I understand that you went to uh, South Carolina for undergrad. Is that correct? That Go Gamecocks. Right. So your third item for over-under push is Clemson University. How do you feel about Clemson? As a school or a football team? <laughs> you could start wherever you want. <laughs> you choose. <laughs> okay. I As much as they are our rival, I have to say that the Clemson football team is a push. They are extremely good, and they have been for a long time, although we beat them last year. Yeah, uh, you did. <laughs> But the school overrated. I mean, I guess it's good if you want to go be a farmer. Oh, a land grant college. Yes, sir. Anytime somebody makes me laugh that hard, it's a win. That's three for three, all Mr. Right, Peoples. All right, all right. Thank you for playing along with our silly game. It was very insightful. No, it was and great. Thank you. It's rare that I deem all three of your opinions correct on this game. So you, we should send him a trophy or something. You did. You, you did better than Jim Lang when he came on a couple months ago. Yeah, it was abysmal. <laughs> We kind of touched on it, but one of the things we talked about is who owns the bottom land. And I think that you said usually it's the Commonwealth. And, you know, in Virginia, the Commonwealth of Virginia owns the bottom land. But why is that a usually and not always? (laughs) Uh, Because we're lawyers. And the answer is always it depends. (laughs) Fair. But no, it's usually and not always because there are some exceptions. One of the exceptions, I actually have a case involving this right now, not to talk too much about it at this moment, but is what we call a king's grant. So of course, back in the 1700s and before, everything that's the United States now, well, I should say, at least on the East Coast, part of the United States used to be owned by England, by the crown of England. And so therefore, the king of England owned all the land and all the land underneath the water. There are some cases where people can trace their chain of title for their real estate all the way back to the 1700s. And they can say, look, I was my predecessor in title was granted these lands, these submerged lands underneath the water. And that's continued on in an unbroken chain of title all the way to today. So I actually own a section of underneath, let's say the James River or, you know, part of the Chesapeake Bay. There are cases like that. There are also situations in which people were granted, and this is a Virginia specific thing, but people were granted portion of the bottom land by the state. Ah. It's now illegal for the state to do that. But Prior to, oh gosh, I think it was maybe 2006, the state could grant ownership of the bottom land to private individuals. We don't see that anymore. Another case is when there's land that's intentionally dredged out and then it fills with water. So let's say, for example, if you if someone digs a quarry on their land and it fills up with water, that doesn't all of a sudden become the bottom of the quarry becomes owned by the state. That's something that's artificially done and you retain ownership of that. Like a, like a tank on a ranch. Right. They, right. they call, it, they call or, ponds tanks out there because they, because that's what it is. That's no, that's it's called, called a pond. In Texas, it's a tank. A tank is the thing that. that Arnie from Gilbert Grape climbed up. You've been yeah. watching too many movies. Yeah. Okay, and ponds so. actually led us to one of the other situations that we see often, which is non-navigable waters. That means a non-navigable waterway is a waterway that can't be used as a highway for commerce. Sometimes you'll also see it defined as anything that's, well, let me put it a different way, anything that's title is going to be navigable. But so let's say you've got just this little tiny stream that that goes through your property and there's no way that you could get any kind of boat or any kind of commerce up and down it. 
and it's platted that you own it, there's probably a good chance that you own the bottom of that non-navigable little stream. The same would be true for like a like a pond, you know, a, a pond that's completely located upon your property. There are there are actually a few cases with ponds. Ponds come in all shapes and sizes. When I think of a pond in my mind, I'm thinking of some tiny, um, you know, small little body of water. Like my grandparents used to have a pond. And I would go fish on it, and it was man-made. Well, obviously they own the bottom of that because they dug it out and then they stock it with fish. And when I was a kid, we would go fish on it. But there are some things that are called ponds. When I look at it and go, gosh, that looks more like a lake to me. It's huge. And that depends on what your deeds and your plats say. Okay. So there are a lot of situations in which multiple property owners, multiple homes sit around a, a pond or a lake. And some of them have property that's platted out into the lake. And if they can show that, and that's shown in their plat and in their deed, then in those cases, if it's non-navigable lake and their chain of title shows that they own it, then the property owner does own underneath that portion of the lake just as if it were their own property. Okay. And there's even case law saying you can put up a fence out into the pond, out into the lake and say, this is my section. This is mine. So I'm thinking about my parents' property right now. They have a creek that runs through the back. They've got like a couple of acres and there's a creek that runs through the back. And I think that their property line is the middle of the creek mm-hmm. because it's it's not navigable. But before we move on to your next point there, when you talk about navigable for commerce or whatever, that doesn't mean like I can get my kayak out. Like that means it needs to be like, what's the definition of navigable as far as like what kind of craft has to be able to fit through that? Or is it dependent on the, the body of water and the typical traffic there? It's very dependent on the body of water and even on the section of the water body. So there are some okay. rivers that at parts are navigable and other parts are not navigable. And to establish that in Virginia, the VMRC has certain criteria you know, that they can look at and has to do with cubic amounts of water that flows through there and things like this. But if this were to be litigated in a court case, it would probably take an expert witness like a hydrologist or an expert in maritime commerce to to testify and establish whether or not this is navigable or not. It's a good question because it's really not that easy to say. In some cases, it's quite easy to look at this little creek that runs through my yard and I can literally hop over it. Right. It's probably non-navigable. But in other cases, it, it may not be that easy to tell. I want to tie this all back up and bring it back around. And what is the importance of whether it's navigable or non-navigable? This is a rhetorical question. And what is the importance of how it's deeded and platted? Because these things will govern what type of rights attach to the landowner and what type of rights can be impacted. Depending on the type of body of water, the type of water, whether it's a lake that is shared by a homeowners association, navigable water, I'm not even sure about, I mean, there are some tributaries that I don't think are navigable, but they flow into larger bodies of water, all kinds of stuff here. And then there's usually wetlands around. They all trigger different types of rights that can be impacted by our projects. That's exactly right. And it, in some cases, triggers ownership. You know, who owns it? Does the state own it or does the private property owner own it? And obviously, if you own the bottom of a water body, you have more rights but if you don't own the bottom of it, but you're a riparian property owner, then you still have some rights, which are your riparian property rights. So yes, it has to do with ownership and value. Got it. 
Well, Brian, I got to tell you, I have learned so much in this episode. I think the first time I ever saw riparian rights anywhere in print, I thought it might be about birds. Okay. I'm being honest. <laughs> That's what I thought. I don't that know why. Tracks. Yep. I know. That from I a, know. From an opera singer, riparian rights and birds, same thing. Same thing. Anyway, I've learned a ton. I think our listeners have probably learned a ton. This is fascinating to me. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for joining us on Infrastructure Junkies, and we'll hope you'll uh, come back sometime. Thank you. It was my pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, Brian. We'll see you next time. Bye, IJs. Bye.